And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be. On this rotating globe, welcome to another edition. I mean, tonight, a very, very special edition of The Other Side of Midnight, the program where a lot of stuff happens behind the scenes. And, you know, maybe we should make a reality television show out of this someday. No one would believe it. Okay. Um, tonight, we're going to hopefully make a little history because, as I said in the promo that uh, uh, appeared, uh, you know, this morning, um, for decades, I've been trying to get people to see what is essentially invisible. And I've tried all different means ever since I figured out that there were ancient glass ruins on the moon. I mean, come on, they'd have to be made of glass, right? And what does glass do? It transmits light. So it's very difficult to see glass structures, even though glass is uh, more than half the uh, uh, elements, uh, the molecular compounds of the Earth's surface, and even more so of the moon. Uh, that's why stuff is made of glass, because it's cheap, it's available, and in a vacuum it uh, creates incredibly strong structures, as uh, the Los Alamos National Laboratory demonstrated with papers many decades ago. Uh, but it is our misfortune that what we find on the moon, and we're going to be showing you in never-before-seen detail tonight, is made of glass which has made it very difficult because not only is the glass transparent, it appears to be self-annealing. Uh, what do I mean by that? It means that if you fire a bullet through it or you make a scratch in it with a diamond, it will heal itself. And the scratches are what cause light scattering, which is why when you look through a dirty windshield, when you're driving west uh, in the late afternoon, toward the setting sun, you can't see the landscape because the glass is pitted with little imperfections, dust particles, you know, all kinds of crud. And it's those little scattering centers that give you that bright glare when means you can't see through the glare to the landscape beyond. Well, on the moon, it turns out the glass is quite a bit more sophisticated. And many years ago, when I kind of got onto this, I made a call to Rensselaer Polytech and asked them about their analysis of the lunar samples. They were one of the experimental teams that received um, part of the Apollo 11 uh, return samples. And when I mentioned things like self-annealing, um, they hung up on me. And I could never get them back. And obviously, they don't answer email from someone they know is a troublemaker. So uh, I never got an answer to my simple question. Was the lunar glass brought back by the astronauts and admitted in the open literature papers that, you know, an enormous percentage of the uh, lunar material that we brought back from the moon in all the missions was glass? Uh, for those folks who think we never went to the moon, why would they think if we went to the moon and faked the papers that we would make up such a bizarre combination uh, that the lunar samples contained an inordinate high percentage of glass? It's not like glass is in our 
you know, lexicon. It's not like we look around and we see glass on the landscape everywhere, not even in, uh, in you know, places where you'd expect to find glass, like around volcanoes. So why, if we never went to the moon, did the uh, papers that got written record this extraordinary high percentage of glass in the lunar materials brought back to Earth? Well, the simple answer is the glass is from the domes. It's been falling on the surface of the moon for millions of years. Uh, if I was to give you an accurate number, which is not possible tonight, it would kind of freak some people out, so we will refrain from uh, unnecessarily freaking people out. But there's a lot of glass on the moon, and no one has really accounted for it. I mean, they're, they glibly talk about meteorite formations, you know, you hit uh, silicon dioxide with enough heat at an impact, a micrometeorite impact, and you get glass. Anyway, that's one explanation. There are much more interesting ones that tonight you are going to see. We have finally, after decades on this trail, discovered a foolproof way to prove, let me underscore that, to prove that there are incredibly highly structured architectural remains of a multi-layered glass dome that at one time apparently covered the entire moon. Now people freak out when I say that because it's like, oh my god, the scale of that, the en engineering, the energy, and anyway, so we'll defer all that to a little later in the program. I want to start tonight, for those of you who are new to The Other Side of Midnight, what you need to do is to go to our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com, click on tonight's banner, which says very provocatively, uh, for the 29th, I think Kentia has the wrong date there. It says the 28th. It should say the 29th, because it is the 29th tonight. Eclipse Imaging Breakthrough confirms an artificial moon. Now, do I mean the moon through and through is artificial? No. But it's very hard to put nuance into a... Uh, blurb so that'll get people interested in finding out what the heck we really mean and um, when you see that you will you'll see how it all kind of comes together so what you want to do is click on that banner that will take you to tonight's guest page and right under the guest page there are uh, fast links to items right under where it says to listen to the show under the banner click on my name that takes you to my section of radio with pictures this is January, January 2023. A couple, three days ago, NASA held a day of remembrance because by a bizarre quirk of fate or maybe some bizarre resonance in the physics, all of the American astronauts who have been lost both on the ground and in space, except for a couple of uh, uh, airplane crashes, which... Uh, we're not counting, but those involved in preparations for upcoming missions like Apollo 1 with uh, Grissom, uh, Chafee, and Ed White, and the other missions, the Columbia and the Challenger, all occurred in January of their respective years. Now, the Columbia was actually technically in February February 1, but it's so close in terms of the window that it's basically, you know, if we're looking for commonality. And 
when when Georgia comes on, Georgia, who's our resident metaphysician, and she's talked about this sacred hyperdimensional calendar where we go through the year and things are kind of set up and then toward the end of the year they come to fruition. I'm just wondering if there is something to the emplacement of all of the major astronaut deaths in the U.S. space program have taken place in or at the very end of the January window. Now, if any of you have been looking at the news lately, it's horrific. Um, starting, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago with the um, uh, Chinese lunar calendar celebrations and the massacre there in Los Angeles, and then going up to Half Moon Bay uh, and another massacre um, on the same, you know, within within 48 hours. Uh, Robin and I had wonderful times in Half Moon Bay, but again, there's this weird resonance. Lunar calendar, Half Moon Bay. I mean, what's going on there? And is this of human design? Is someone sending meta-level messages of death or is this at some higher level? I'm, I'm of the opinion that we're looking at higher level stuff. Um, and when we uh, bring Georgia on in a couple hours, we will, uh, I will, you know, definitely um, remind myself, and you'll remind me, I'm sure, to ask her what she thinks of this, because these weird resonance patterns. And then what? Yesterday, the day before, there were another seven people killed um, in Los Angeles. So we've had. You know, constant, non-stop, mass public death. And that's not counting the other 30-plus killings between the beginning of January and tonight. And so I thought it might be important to take a pause, because these are all horrible, tragic, pointless, you know, departures of humans from this 3D realm. But if you look at item number one, this is a connection to the NASA.gov specials uh, Day of Remembrance page. All those people, all those astronauts, all those American heroes who died, they died for a reason. They died doing something that they loved. They died in service to the larger sense of the nation and humanity. And they died for a future, which you're going to hear about, you know, in the next three hours tonight, that is going to take the human race to incomparable heights once the next group of astronauts, be they the Artemis astronauts who are going to the moon in a couple years, or the wild card on the space scene, the nine artists who Elon Musk is um, taking in the Starship on a three-day journey, orbiting the moon for three days before his uh, hand-picked group of uh, artists, musical artists, photographers, um, um, communications artists, uh, musicians, broad-scale artists, you know, right-brained folks, people who can see outside the box. Those people are going to go to the moon and based on what we're going to talk about tonight, and we now are making inroads in delivering this information directly to each and every one 
of these civilians who will not have signed their lives away as the military is required to do with NDAs and non-disclosures and, you know, orders and um, following, you know, the, the command structure. These will be nine civilian artists who from a distance of only about 120 miles above the moon, which is about twice the altitude of the original Apollo astronauts, and I think that's a very good uh, altitude because if you go much lower, you wind up interacting with the uh, fragments of the dome that are still there, which have the consistency, by the way, on the near side, on the front side of cigarette smoke. And the only reason that we now tonight can debut a technology that can make all of this incredibly ancient, super advanced architecture visible is there is so much of it. Literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of what they call optical path length where the light has to go through and through and through and through and it's scattered and reflected and it's the long distance, that optical path length that kicks back enough light to be visible and photographable provided you know the secret sauce. And it's taken me decades to figure out with a little help from our uh, South Korean friends, the secret sauce. And then it's one of those things where before you figure it out, it's impossible. And after you figure it out, it's like, oh my God, it was obvious. Yeah, right. Anyway, that's item number one. Item number two. Now, this is in relation to some of our discussion tonight uh, later on with Michael Hill because the moon is part of a Earth-Moon system, which is not a random collection of planetary objects. It turns out the moon is exactly 0.272 times the diameter of the Earth. And what is 0.272? Oh gosh, it's the base of natural logarithms. Now you tell me that a random accretion process back in the generic mainstream formation of the solar system, um, somehow the Earth acquired a moon in its particular inclination and distance and, and uh, non-circularity of its orbit that is exactly 0.272, the nat base of natural logarithms, um, a fraction of the Earth which it orbits, Okay, no, there's something more interesting going on. And it, in fact, includes a very important frequency that we're going to talk about uh, toward the end of the show quite a bit. 432 and all of the fractals thereof. Keep that number in mind, 432. It will come back into the conversation in a while. So item number two um, is relating to this physics because these are all numbers that are basically at the heart of the hyperdimensional physics model. And recent studies have suggested that, well, many, many years ago it was discovered through mainstream science, earthquake data, you know, long distance networks of seismic uh, uh, stations and all that, that the core of the Earth, which is a little over 700 miles in diameter and 8,000 mile diameter planet, the core of the Earth is not rotating 
with the rest of Earth. It's rotating slightly faster. Well, it now appears to have paused. So when they say in that headline, Earth's inner core may have paused rotation and reversed, they don't mean that it's spinning backward in space. They mean it's spinning backward slightly relative to the surface layers, the mantle and the crust, which are rotating at the familiar rate of 24 hours uh, once around relative to the sun. And all of that is so bizarre. I mean, um, I could pull up the actual quote. This is a story in, of all places, The Hill. Now, does anybody remember what The Hill newspaper is? It's kind of like the official newspaper of the Congress on Capitol Hill. What is a political, you know, paper devoted to votes and politics and Republicans and Democrats and independents and, you know, surveys and polls and, in other words, the politics of the nation? What is it doing suddenly out of the blue featuring a story relating to Earth's inner core changing its rotation relative to the rest of the planet? Um, is it possible that somebody somewhere knows something and we're being carefully prepped to figure it out in the mainstream? It's going to come kind of like the new wisdom from the NASA folks looking at UAPs and the Pentagon folks looking at UAPs and the various congressmen and senators who are waiting with bated breath for the leakers to come forward with stories from inside the government, inside the military, inside the contractor, you know, ensemble, inside NASA that relates to a technology for flying around in the atmosphere of the Earth that in fact is not normal day-to-day mainstream physics, but in fact only works if there is a higher level physics of which the dramatic change in the rotation of the inner core of the Earth is something that can be safely teased as part of things to come. Item number three. This appeared in several different venues. It, uh, there's a couple of papers in Nature, which is the kind of official Bible of science uh, published out of uh, uh, Britain. And then there are various news agencies around the world that picked up on this. Ron and I are going to talk about this later uh, in the show because just as we're getting Artemis missions to the moon and just as Musk is preparing to fly his nine tourists, his nine artists, and just as there is a whole flotilla of unmanned spacecraft heading back to the moon to look at all kinds of things, including some commercial unmanned robotic landings, in the next few months, or attempted landings, uh, we suddenly have a a feature story circulating around the planet that the powers that be are trying to figure out what kind of time standard to establish on the moon. And as Ron and I have discussed off-air, um, there's something missing in the story. And so you want to read the story and then, I mean, you don't have to do it now, but you'll listen to us and then you'll go read the story and you'll see that we may be able to provide a missing puzzle piece for what is otherwise really kind of 
unusual because why should there be any real disagreement about what kind of time to try to keep on the moon given today's extraordinarily accurate uh, atomic timekeeping technology and the ability of uh, radio uh, waves to transmit time code information anywhere in the solar system uh, why wouldn't they simply adopt uh, you know Greenwich Mean Time or Universal uh, Time and transport it to the moon by means of radio signals but no there's something else going on and so when we get to that part of tonight's uh, conversation we will delve into some of the details item number four we are now entertaining once again in the skies of late late January uh, culminating in the next week or so as this object flies closest within I think something like 28 million miles of Earth the comet uh, the comet of uh, 2023, the first bright one, the first one that actually has risen now to naked eye visibility. It's about fifth magnitude um, in the constellation of Camelor Pardalis, which lies kind of between Ursa Minor and Ursa Major in that graphic. And as you know, the uh, uh, pole star um, point is, is basically Polaris. So the two end stars in Ursa Major, the Big Dipper, point toward Polaris. Well, if you go out before dawn this morning and you look to the north, if you're in the northern hemisphere, and if you're in the country where the sky is dark, you'll never see this in a city, unfortunately. Um, what you want to do is draw that line between Ursa Major, the two stars in the, belt, in the uh, uh, dipper of the uh, Big Dipper, to Polaris, make a right-hand turn about halfway between the two and there just to the right about the same distance you'll find this faint comet with a tail pointing away from the sun so if sunrise is around six-ish uh, in the morning you want to go out at least an hour before because that's still in uh, astronomical twilight and you'll know that the tail should point up away from the east and uh, you'll need probably binoculars to see it, uh, to lock onto it. And then with your naked eye, you can actually boast to yourself and your friends that you've seen another interesting object. Now, why, why is this important now? Well, a number of us on the Enterprise mission uh, team have come to the conclusion that most of these objects, these incredible celestial wayfarers, these wanderers, uh, are not natural. They're left over from this ancient, incredibly advanced technological time, this era, millions of years ago, maybe co-equal in time, maybe uh, a bit younger, but the same time frame in which whoever domed in the moon built the dome around our own satellite right in our backyard. And why do they have tails and why do they outgas? because they were habitats and spacecraft, and they were prey to this extraordinary interplanetary war which interrupted everything, and from which we have apparently still not recovered. All of that, of course, is speculation until, based on the data we're gonna to present tonight, of the reality of a formerly inhabited moon with tons of architecture somewhere in all that architecture either 
above ground in newer emplacements or below ground in very ancient vaults and archives, there are libraries which contain not only written documentation of all the stuff that we speculate about, if the model is correct, but probably also a stunning set of imagery that moves. In other words, video. And it is going to fall to the astronauts of the Artemis program, who are going to be the forerunners <clears throat> of NASA's effort with international cooperation to set up the first modern permanent lunar base near the south pole of the moon to find one of those libraries, bring it home, and understand how to decode the extraordinary information contained therein. That is our mission. Okay, we're literally down to the last couple of minutes before the bottom of the hour. Uh, let me leave you with one final um, news note. When I saw this a few days ago, it's like a light bulb went off and I thought, well, of course. This is a story about Chelsea Handler, who's a very famous, you know, information person, YouTube person, actress, singer, dancer, whatever. She's one of those, you know, public actresses who is all over everywhere. And you don't really kind of wonder why is she famous. She's just kind of famous for being famous. In this story, in this profile, she admits that she did not know the difference between the sun and the moon until she was in her 40s. And the author of the piece, the, the writer, said, and she was so serious. Now, I'm not pointing this out to embarrass Chelsea Handler, but to basically point fingers at something really, really crucial, which is the American educational system. How can one in America, in the United States of America, how can one possibly reach the uh, age of 40 and not know something as simple and basic as the difference between the sun and the moon? And as I looked at this story, as I read the details, um, and she is properly chagrined, it occurred to me that an awful lot of other people who don't have the courage to be honest and admit exactly what the problem has been. When we purvey this data, when we show them images and radar and all kinds of optical, you know, spectral measurements and a variety of infrared imagery and all the panoply of overwhelming evidence for the existence of this set of domes, these shell structures around the moon. The reason there has been no real reaction is because most people, if we can use Chelsea Handler as our example, they have no idea what should exist on or above or below the surface of the moon. They see it with the naked eye, if they see the sky at all, and it's like there for a while and then it's not there. And all of the stories about going there and the astronauts and all that, they're kind of like background noise because they don't really affect their life here on Earth, which for all people has been getting worse and worse and worse. And it's really hard every day just to make a living, let alone entertain 
random romantic thoughts about what could have been in an ancient time long, long ago and a quarter million miles away around the surface of something that is so part of the background that it's taken for granted and the details have completely passed, again, again given Handler's confession, completely passed most people by. So I believe that we're going to have to have a kind of a dedicated campaign for those people that do not understand, never imagined that there would be something that would impinge on their world and would actually change the very conversation about the relevance of the moon orbiting the Earth. When we come back, I will introduce our panel and we will have a most interesting conversation about what can change future history for all humankind. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. This is the dark side of the moon. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, January 29th. Only a couple days more left in the first month of the new year, 2023. And it's going to go like snow on the sun side of Mercury, I guarantee you, particularly if there are surprises down the road. And next Sunday night, we're going to do part two of our uh, of things to come in 2023. And we're going to try to predict some of the things that could happen um, that may surprise some of you. And then we'll lead to other surprises in a kind of a concatenation of surprise. Okay, so let me go back to what I was going to set up the panel for. As soon as I do a little more backgrounding here, I'm going to introduce our players for the night. If you go to item number six, I'm going to do this real quickly. I have been looking at the um, potential of lunar artifacts for you know, at least a decade and a half, if not even longer. Um, I did not start out thinking there was this lunar-wide dome that came slowly um, through some rather remarkable serendipitous events from NASA and a mission called La Crosse in 2009. Um, but the actual official deep state examination of the potential for structures on the moon that can be seen with even modest cameras from the Earth, apparently began back during the formation of Project Corona by the CIA. And I've always felt, when I figured out what they were really up to, when I got that leaked uh, roll of film briefly before they snatched it away, 
But not before I couldn't make a couple of, you know, frames, uh, uh, you know, record them and look at them in some detail. Um, I've always felt that this hidden occupation of the Central Intelligence Agency looking at the moon when they should have been looking down from orbit, as they told us they were doing, at Soviet bombers and airfields and industrial parks and tank, you know, deployments and all that, that that was because we're kind of living in this two-tiered level of reality, whereas the stuff on Earth is supposed to be real, and the stuff out in space is supposed to be, well, not connected, not really, you know, part of ordinary folks' lives at all, and in fact, it may be inverted. It's the stuff out there that they have really been focused on, and all the stuff going on down here is kind of like diversion, so we'll never outside of the officialdom get a real picture of what happened out there that has so mandated and so constrained and so totally formed everything we think of as normal down here. And it began with that first photo, number six, which is a KH8 image from Project Corona, corrected by some imaging work I did on it, and it shows a very different moon um, in some areas than you see if you just look up at the moon on a full moon night or you look at it with a telescope or binoculars. There again, on that first CIA set of imagery, it, there's some kind of a haze, some kind of a covering which blots out surface detail. And they were not using, I don't think on this imagery, the amazing technological breakthrough that we're going to talk about later tonight. This appears to have been an early effort by the CIA to figure out how do you photograph this extraordinary, unbelievable, lunar-wide domed structure. Which brings us to number seven. Now, this is a modern image taken in central Mongolia during a total eclipse of the sun by a Czech researcher named Druckmuller. And what he does is he takes multiple images and then with a very special written computer program, which not only evens out the bright and, and, and dark areas of the image, so you can get the corona in its full extraordinary um, detail, stretching from the moon's limb out several lunar or solar radii away. But he also uh, developed a program to photograph the faint reflected light of the, of the Earth, Earthshine, Earthlight, shining on the dark hemisphere of the moon, which of course is facing the Earth. And under normal eclipse images, it appears to be a totally black circle. But it's not. There is light there. And what Dirk Miller has done is to develop very sophisticated computer algorithms that allow him to allow for the differential movement in the sky during the period of image taking between the moon, which of course is moving across the sky at a little over 2,000 miles an hour. So if there's a five-minute eclipse and you're taking pictures during the eclipse, in that five minutes, the moon has moved relative to the sun and the corona 93 miles away behind it. And his algorithm is able to now, in such a sophisticated manner, to allow for these separate motions and to reconstruct 
and reel back the clock in terms of individual motions that his imaging of the Earth light on the moon is by far the highest resolution and the most precise and the most replicable, and it's on his imagery that we have made what I call the final breakthrough in seeing the domes around the moon. Look very carefully at that image. I mean, really carefully. Now, if you're Chelsea Handler, it looks like the moon, right? Or people who are like Chelsea that run, haven't really kind of paid attention for many, many decades to what the moon looks like. But if you're anybody who's an amateur astronomer or someone who kind of looks at the moon in a different way with the dawn of the space age as a place that someday they may actually go either as an astronaut or as a tourist, and there are a lot of those folks with us now, that moon that you're seeing there, which looks so, quote, normal, it's absolutely mind-blowing. It should not exist. So go to number eight. Click on number eight. On the left is a normal white light image taken from low Earth orbit by the Iconos um, Earth observing satellite that was put up a decade or so ago. It's in space, it's in a vacuum, and the object on the right is the uh, same image from uh, Druckmuller taken in 2008 in Mongolia, and they're scaled so that you're looking at the same size object. Notice the difference of detail. They are not the same. They should be the same. It's the same moon, the same sun reflected from the Earth, so why should reflecting sunlight from the Earth onto the dark side of the moon when it's facing us during an eclipse, why should it suddenly have very, very different features? Okay, that's one mystery. Now we go to number nine. This is a photograph taken during a South Korean press conference uh, a few weeks ago um, of the... Uh, uh, Korean Space Agency presentation on their Denuri unmanned mission to the moon that left many months ago and just arrived uh, in December of last year and went into a low orbit about 60 miles up in a polar orbit now circling the moon every couple hours. This was a picture that when I saw it, it was like, oh, you, you got to be kidding. This is, this, is, this is unbelievable. What the heck are the South Koreans doing? Because again, look carefully at number 10, which is an enlargement of that image. Um, what, the, what the South Koreans did is to take that image, blow it up, put it on a poster as part of their website, and they put artificial artistic stars behind it. And I've left the stars so you can kind of see how they took this real photo and they made it appear to be an art piece and telling nobody the details of the photo. Even during that press conference, uh, if you look at uh, number seven, uh, that presenter didn't talk about what was on this moon image at all. He just used it as a kind of a talking piece for the orbit. Uh, there's a very faint red line. If you go back and look at uh, number, number nine, that red line is the trajectory of the Nduri spacecraft on this kind of poor reproduction which was on the web. 
If you go to number 11, again, this is a comparison between the Denuri moon on the left and the Akanos moon on the right. Notice what is so stunningly, bizarrely out of place in terms of the Denuri moon image compared to the normal moon that you see with your own eyes, you see in countless photographs, uh, either with you know a smartphone or with a telescope or from an observatory or from NASA. Uh, the moon on the right is the kind of one we're all familiar with, those that know the moon at all, and it turns out to be a very small fraction of our current population. The moon on the left, it should not be. It's, it's impossible. Why is there this bright, bright ring around the Denuri spacecraft moon? And if you look at number 10 again, close up, you can see that the moon image that they are purveying was not even taken from the Earth. It was taken in transit between the Earth and the Moon during the early part of the Denuri mission. How do we know this? Because the bright crater in the middle, if you compare the image in number um, uh, 10 to 11, you can see that bright crater is to the left, way to the left, like 20 degrees to the left of center in the Iconos Moon, taken just a couple of hundred miles above the Earth. The Denuri moon image has to be taken far away in space so that you literally have rotated around the moon a quarter million miles away by some 20 degrees, meaning it was taken in the transit from a different perspective. And no artist could possibly have imagined that scenario. So that was my first clue that they were actually palming off as an art piece a real photograph taken by the spacecraft en route and they just put it out there so the world could see it and nothing official was ever up till tonight has been said about it. There's no caption. There's no discussion. There's no presentation. It's not part of any South Korean space agency papers on the Denuri mission. It's just used as a kind of a uh, background for their, you know, captions of the various parts of the mission. In other words, it's an extraordinary official leak with no attribution and no explanation of what it's really showing you. And for any amateur astronomer to look at that image, or any professional astronomer to look at that image and say, what in the world are the Koreans doing? The moon never looks like that. The only thing that can look like that is a planet with an atmosphere, and we know from measurements for literally hundreds of years, the moon has no atmosphere. We know from the Apollo surface experiments, the moon has no atmosphere, certainly nothing thick enough to cause that optical effect. The only other thing it could be is the scattering of light in the lunar-wide set of domes I have been presenting for the last 10-plus years. And yet, no astronomer, professional or amateur, has said anything on social media from anywhere in the world that I can find asking the Koreans, what the hell are you doing? Where did you get that image of the moon? And why aren't you telling us what it's showing? So now we go to number 12. 
What it's showing, of course, and this is not, you know, real. This is a kind of a tongue-in-cheek made-up metaphor for me. Uh, on the right is the Druckmuller uh, 2008 Mongolia eclipse image, which shows the night side of the Earth, the side away from the sun, the side that faces the Earth, uh, you know, from the moon during an eclipse. On the left side is a similar scaled image of a cutaway onion. Why? Because the domes uh, around the moon, around the surface that we see in a white light image, are literally stacked on top of each other like the layers of an onion. And if you look at number 13, where I've done the metaphor uh, a little better in terms of rotating at 90 degrees, so you're looking with gravity down and, you know, space up, the, the top part is the uh, right side, the right-hand side of the Druckmuller image, merely enlarged. The central enlargement is the detail, the incredible architectural structural detail with layering upon layering upon layering vertically uh, extending, you know, above the surface of the moon. And the bottom is the uh, enlargement of the cutaway onion showing what layering looks like. There is no way to get that layering on the moon through any, you know, digital trickery or any fakery or any misregistration or anything other than a photograph taken in the right light with the right kind of camera to record something that the human eye and all normal photographs up till now have not been able to record. Number 14 is a comparison on top, the Druckmuller image showing this incredible, and you want to click on all these because they get much bigger. Look at all that architectural detail, layer upon layer upon layer and cross beams and bracing and it's all glass and it's all made visible by the kind of imaging system that was used to take these images. And the bottom panel that's a enlargement of the Nuri Moon image, which was inherently a very low-resolution image taken by a wide-angle camera very far away from the moon. But if you look carefully, you can see there is incipient layering in the Nuri image. There just isn't sufficient resolution to see the same details that was recorded during the 2008 eclipse by Druckmuller and company. And it all kind of comes together if you go now and click on that link at the bottom of the caption of image number 15 tonight, which Keith did a wonderful job of laying all this out so you can follow the uh, the trail, because that goes directly to page 7 of the PDF, which is a replication of the English version of the Denuri uh, mission uh, press kit. And that describes a camera specifically carried for the first time ever that we know from any space agency to lunar orbit to 60 miles up. And en route, this camera obviously was the camera used to take the image that you see in item 11 or in item number 10 because it's a polarimetric camera, meaning it takes images in what's called polarized light. Light has two properties. It is filterable in terms of wavelength, 
Long wavelengths in the optical spectrum are red. Short wavelengths are blue and violet. Well, light has another property that isn't generally discussed uh, in the civilian population because it's rare that it comes into play in terms of you know, working with light in your normal everyday experience. The only people that are kind of familiar with this are drivers, truck drivers, vacationers, people out for trips in late afternoon, because they know that when they drive west looking at the setting sun, because of all the crud on most windshields, it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, and very dangerous to try to see the details of traffic through a windshield facing the sun because of the scattering of light. So that's where this second invisible property of light comes into play. Because in addition to having a wavelength, light also has what's called a vector, meaning it vibrates in particular geometric planes. Most light coming from the sun vibrates um, in a circle. In other words, it's radial. In any direction you look, it's vibrating left and right, up and down, back and forth. And without the proper filtering, the light just is, appears as a featureless glare when it goes through glass. But if you put on a pair of Polaroid sunglasses, or you have what's called a polarizing filter, you can hold up to the windshield and rotate left and right, you will be able to eliminate the glare from the surface of the glass and only look at the polarized frequencies of light that are coming through the glass. And that's how you can get rid of glare driving west at, at sunset, looking through a dirty windshield because the light coming off the windshield is polarized differently than the light coming through the windshield. And Polaroid filtering or Polaroid sunglasses where Edwin Land created a commercial technology out of an obscure uh, physics reality in a lab there in Boston, the Polaroid Land Company, which also made the camera. Remember the instant camera? It was Edwin Land who did that. Anyway, he created Polaroid sunglasses, and it's the polarization of light that is allowed in a special camera, and the details are in that link, item number 15, Everything you wanted to know about the Denuri polarizing camera is visible in that link. And you'll see that it covers a variety of wavelengths, but it also covers a variety of polarizing angles. And it is the first polar, polarimetric camera to be flown on any known mission to the moon. Now, what do you suppose the South Koreans are up to? But we'll save that for our conversation. Item number 16, um, what happens with the Earth, which is this incredible, fortuitous, stunning, science fact-turned technological revolution, is that when the sunlight bounces off the Earth, goes past the moon, is reflected from the night side of the moon, particularly during a total solar eclipse, and bouncing back to Earth so a camera can photograph it. It turns out that because the light reflecting off the oceans of the Earth and the atmosphere is like about 30 to 40 percent 
polarized. When it reaches the moon, because now tonight we can announce with absolute certitude the presence of all this structured glass, even in the shattered fragmentary remains uh, of what it used to be. That glass reflects almost 100% of this polarized light back to Earth. So the Earth light that I've been chasing on the night side of the moon during a total eclipse since my experiment way back when in 1970 with CBS News, which we talked about and we showed some video uh, on an earlier program. Um, that light coming back, that earth light, that earth shine, that bluish, gorgeous view of the entire full moon seen in earth light is actually seen in polarized earth light because the lunar structures selectively reflect <clears throat> almost 100% at the right angle of that polarized light coming from the Earth, and the Earth-Moon combination is the only planet in the solar system where this natural background reality obtains. The only place you can see polarized light from another celestial body automatically, naturally in the landscape, is from Earth's Moon shining back to Earth during a total eclipse of the Sun if you have a sensitive enough camera. And we now have millions of people all over the earth, maybe billions, who have the sensitivity in a smartphone in their digital camera to be able to record during a total eclipse of the sun, the moon, forget the corona, they can record the moon and their pictures of the moon will show exactly the same stunning shell-like glass structure that Druckmuller recorded, not even knowing what he was doing in 2008 and in multiple other eclipses going forward and back that I've looked now carefully through his archive and found what I needed to find. Which brings us to 17. It was a 1920s astronomer uh, whose name I think was was Eddington, who was one of the first uh, confirmers of relativity uh, in photographing eclipses. He said to his colleagues, um, gentlemen, I mean, he was a Victorian astronomer, so he said gentlemen. He said, gentlemen, you do not have a science unless you can express it in numbers. Well, tonight, I am pleased to say that we literally can express the numbers of the dome numerically, mathematically, because if you click on item 17, it will take you to a paper about something in polarization studies called the Brewster Angle, named after a physicist, David Brewster, in 1815, who discovered that polarizing light bounces off reflecting objects, either glass or water, or other fluids uh, at different angles depending upon the refractive index, in other words, the composition of the transparent material. And glass has a very specific angle of reflection for polarization like we're seeing on the moon. 
that angle is 53 degrees. If you look at the right-hand version of my composite and you look at the gridding and the central line is zero and then it's one, two, three, four, five, six. So you divide 90 by six. You'll see that the Brewster angle is what causes the sudden visibility of the dome in a circumference within the limb of the moon, but some distance from the center of the moon because the glass is glass and it's polarizing light the way Brewster found it. And in fact, this is the end of our discussion. And when we come back, we're going to have one heck of a time talking to all our folks who have all kinds of questions, I'm sure, because they have not seen any of this until you had tonight. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Welcome to the future. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.